Okay, for the next half hour, I'm going to take you back to an age that in many ways seems like ancient history. An age when almost every day saw bombs going off in Northern Ireland, when half of the population belonged to a trade union, when first division footballers earned less than £200 a week, when Angel Delight was a gourmet dessert, when Phil Collins had long hair, and when you could buy wallpaper in any colour you wanted, as long as it was brown. <laughs> like Sam Tyler, the time-travelling detective in the BBC's hit series Life on Mars, you're about to suffer what some would consider a fate worse than death. You're going back to the early 70s, the years of Ted Heath and Harold Wilson, George Best and Germaine Greer, a bygone age when Leeds United ruled the First Division, the Labour Party still proudly flew the red flag of socialism, and James Bond wore a cravat. <laughs> Imagine that when you woke up this morning, you found yourself catapulted back in time to one of the biggest public events in modern British history. The date is the 14th of November, 1973. And what you can hear in the background is Noel Edmonds on the Radio 1 Breakfast Show introducing the current number one, David Cassidy's Daydreamer. It's a big day, a public holiday. And even as you're shaking yourself awake, tens of thousands of onlookers are pouring onto the streets between Buckingham Palace and Westminster Abbey, where hundreds of little flags are fluttering in the breeze. The Boy Scouts in their green uniforms are getting ready to hand out their souvenir programmes, the hawkers are moving in with their hot dogs and their bottles of lemonade, their Union Jacks and their Mark and Ann T-shirts. And no doubt two people in particular are feeling particularly nervous because today, live on television, Princess Anne and Captain Mark Phillips are getting married and no fewer than 28 million people are going to watch them do it. If you went down onto the streets of London to watch the crowds that morning, you'd find plenty that would amuse you. You'd see lots of Parker anoraks and flowing maxi dresses, long sideburns and shaggy beards, enough flares to last you a lifetime, and maybe even the odd outbreak of dungarees. Although, of course, there'd be fewer of all those things than you expect, partly because many people in the early 70s still dressed relatively conservatively, and only a handful were at what you might rather generously call the cutting edge of fashion. But if you looked at the headlines, you'd be in for a shock. The front page of the Daily Mirror, which was still then Europe's biggest-selling newspaper, carries a photo of the happy couple with what it calls the smiles of two young people in love to cheer up Britain today. But the banner headline across the top tells a rather different story. Cold comfort, it says. It's cold comfort Britain today as the government faces the worst crisis, economic, financial and political, since it came to power in 1970. Then you have the biggest middle market newspaper in the country, the Daily Express. Similarly, uh, it has the same photo of Mark and Anne, and it has a similarly bleak headline, Here Comes the Freeze. Enjoy all the sparkle of the royal wedding, its lead story begins. Because afterwards, the lights will dim, petrol rationing will loom, coal will be scarce, the central heating is liable to go off. On top of all that, money will be tighter, with overdrafts more expensive. Just in case you had any shreds of optimism left, here's the Times. Lights go out as emergency powers bite, says the main headline. Urgent action to meet energy crisis. Triple threat to the nation. And inside, the paper's editorial page makes no mention of the royal wedding at all. Instead, it warns that Britain faces what it calls a fight to the death between the government and the miners. The stark title of the editorial says it all. A state of emergency. Now, this, of course, is the 70s that we often remember. A bleak, miserable decade, blighted by strikes and shortages, 
a decade when you could buy a new colour TV, but power cuts would stop you from watching it. A decade when the evening news regularly carried pictures of burly men in donkey jackets warming their hands around braziers, when the politicians left, lost their grip and the economy plunged into oblivion. And of course, this picture is often exaggerated, not least by Thatcherites who want to paint the 70s as the kind of dark night before the dawn. But there's more than a grain of truth in it. Just over a month before Anne and Mark's fairy tale wedding, the Arab-dominated OPEC cartel had imposed a devastating 70% increase in the cost of oil, the famous 1973 oil shock, which overnight, almost overnight anyway, sent the Western economies lurching into a kind of nightmarish combination of uh, recession and inflation, stagflation. And that was the event that gave Edward Heath's opponents in the National Union of Mine Workers their chance, quite literally, to strike. Just two days before the royal wedding, Britain's 260,000 miners, a statistic that tells its own story about how things have changed since then, had begun an overtime ban in pursuit of higher pay, including defiance of the nationwide wage limits that Heath had imposed only weeks before. And that very evening, as millions of people were still gathered around their TV sets watching the wedding coverage, the electricity board, the electricity board warned that in the next few days, most of the country was liable to suffer severe power cuts, plunging schools and hospitals, homes and offices into darkness. And that, of course, is, is absolutely what did happen. Because if you did go back in time, which is the 14th of November 1973, and if you stuck around for a few weeks, you would find yourself in the middle of what I think remains the biggest uh, political and economic crisis in Britain since the Second World War. In some ways... The parallels with our own position are irresistibly striking. In the opening years of the 1970s, Ted Heath's Chancellor, Anthony Barber, a man who was once very accurately described as looking like somebody who always played a vicar in the local amateur dramatic society, Barber had drastically inflated the economy, hoping that the resulting dash for growth would abolish the depressing cycle of boom and bust. Thanks to the oil shock, however, Barber's bubble had well and truly burst leaving the economy on the brink of recession, the stock market in meltdown, the property market in ruins. The government cut spending by $1.2 billion, which was roughly 4% of total spending. But many experts thought that worse, much worse, was to come. In late December 1973, the Permanent Secretary to the Treasury, Sir Douglas Allen, told his colleagues that he expected Britain, quote, to move into a siege economy with rationing on the wartime model. At almost exactly the same time, Labour's shadow chancellor, Dennis Healy, told his colleagues that Britain faced an economic holocaust. Meanwhile, the historian A.J.P. Taylor was sending a series of increasingly gloomy letters to his Hungarian fiancée, Eva. He was terrified by the approaching hurricane, he wrote, predicting shortages of oil and coal, the absence of heat and light, and millions thrown out of work. I've been expecting the collapse of capitalism all my life, he remarked with gallows humour. But now that it comes, I'm rather annoyed. Meanwhile, the energy crisis continued. In London, schools sent children home because of heating problems. In Lincolnshire, the police gave up their cars and went back on the beat to save petrol costs. In Sussex, 10,000 streetlights were turned off to save power. The government even paid for full-page ads in the newspapers, begging people to stop what they called weekend motoring, to organise carpools and to keep below 50 miles an hour. But it was no good. The coal stocks continued to run out. The miners refused to go back to work. 
And the railwaymen decided that this would be the ideal moment for them to walk out on strike too. The government banned floodlighting. It told the BBC and ITV they had to stop broadcasting at 10.30 every night. It ordered offices to keep their temperatures below 63 degrees Fahrenheit. But none of this was enough. And just before Christmas, Ted Heath went on television and told the nation that from New Year's Eve onwards, Britain would be on a three-day week. And if things weren't bad enough, that Christmas Heath had to endure the supreme humiliation, an offer of help from the Ugandan dictator Idi Amin, who announced that he had set up a Save Britain fund. I have decided to contribute 10,000 Ugandan shillings from my savings, said Amin, and I am convinced that many Ugandans will donate generously to rescue their innocent British friends. Now, the irony was that the three-day week was much less damaging economically than we often remember. Many firms responded with great ingenuity. They used battered old screwdrivers and spanners to keep working, even when the power had been turned off. In Nottingham, the clerical staff at Rally Industries worked without heat or light so that all the power could be switched to the production line. In Sheffield, a snuff-making firm even reverted to using a water wheel that had last seen action in 1737. On the King's Road, Chelsea, a furrier's shop displayed the sign open six days a week by candle power, battery power and will power. All in all, production levels fell by less than a tenth, which spoke volumes for the energy with which firms approached the three-day week but didn't really say it so much for their efficiency beforehand. And there were plenty of compensations. Audiences trebled for late-night radio shows by the likes of John Peel and Whispering Bob Harris, who used to torment night owls with interminable progressive rock. Fishing tackle shops reported booming sales. Golf courses were deluged with aspiring Tony Jacklins. And the introduction of earlier kickoff times and Sunday games allowed the Football League to continue as normal, with Don Revis' Leeds United setting a record of 29 matches without defeat. Indeed, some people actively welcomed the prospect of a three-day week. Now at last, said one Daily Mail columnist, we have time to do all those lazy and free things we always wanted. With so much free time and no electricity, she said, people should take the opportunity to enjoy rereading an old book or digging the garden. In a very un-Daily Mail-like fashion, she had a saucier suggestion too. The three-day week, she said, was a chance, quote, for husbands and wives to be more spontaneous, to experiment more in their sex lives while the kids are doing a five-day week at school. Now, I have to confess I was greatly amused when I first heard this story, but my smile disappeared very quickly when I uh, realised that those words were written almost exactly nine months before I was born. (laughs) There are very few authors, I think, who, uh, in researching their books, discover that... uh, they have to contemplate the serious possibility that they may owe their very existence to a column in the Daily Mail. <laughs> but for most people, of course, the prospect of um, endless power cuts, crippling inflation, millions out of work, and a fight to the death between the government and the miners was no laughing matter. And there's no doubt, I think, that the early 70s were a peculiarly troubled time in our national history, in our recent national history, anyway. In barely four years the Heath government was compelled to call five states of emergency, and that's even before you consider the horrific slaughter in Northern Ireland, which by 1974 was already spilling over onto the British mainland. These years were ones of extraordinary cultural and social flux, but they also represented something of a reckoning for a country, a consensus, and an economy that for two decades had been living on borrowed time. 
the statistics speak for themselves. In 1950, Britain commanded a share of about 25% of the world trade in manufacturers. By 1970, it commanded less than 10%, just half that of West Germany. In the league table of GDP growth, meanwhile, Britain fell from 9th in 1961 to 13th in 1966 and 15th in 1971 on its way to a miserable 18th in 1976. For the past 25 years or more, the United Kingdom has been in a state of chronic crisis, a British disease, wrote the former Labour politician Lord Shawcross in July 1970. The public need to face facts. This country is not, and for a long time has not been, sufficiently competitive in world markets. Indeed, at a very basic level, the power cuts and strikes of the 1970s, the hysterical headlines, the predictions of disaster, all these things were rooted in profound international challenges, from the collapse of the British Empire to the surging tide of globalisation. Ted Heath struggled to cope with them, and his attempted solutions indeed often made matters worse. But no government, Conservative or Labour, could have escaped unscathed. By 1974, Britain stood on the brink of a profound transformation, caught between past and present, its political consensus fragmenting under the pressures of social change, its economy struggling to cope with overseas competitors, its culture torn between the comforts of nostalgia and the excitement of change, its leaders groping to understand a landscape transformed by consumerism and social mobility. An old world was dying, a new was struggling to be born. And yet when I was writing my last book on the uh, events of the early 1970s, it struck me that a uniformly bleak, grim, depressing view of the decade, indeed a depressing view of the winter of 1973-74, doesn't tell the whole story. Trawling idly on the internet one day, I came across the diary of a 12-year-old teenage girl from Essex. Now, she wrote this diary in 1973 through to the summer of 1974, and from time to time, she took note of the major political events of the day. So on New Year's Day, she wrote the following. As the power and energy crisis is still on, it looks as if we'll soon be using candles and riding bikes everywhere. And yet, despite all the talk of national crisis, her diary actually tells a different story. A story of camping expeditions, of trips to sweet shops and Chinese takeaways, the purchase of records and bubble bath, and the compilation of David Cassidy scrapbooks. David Cassidy, for those of you who don't know, was a sort of big, uh, uh, sort of teeny bopper heartthrob of the early 70s, short-lived um, and hideously loathsome in many ways, but very popular um, at the time. And this, all of these things reflected, of course, the fact that this was an age in which most ordinary people were far better off than ever before. So for Christmas that year, this girl, this diarist, had a, bottom of, a bottle of talcum powder, two bottles of nail varnish, a nightdress, the board game Cluedo, a Leo Sayer record, a David Cassidy storybook, and £20 to buy clothes. Now, 20 or 30 years ago, a Christmas haul like that for an ordinary teenage girl would have been simply unimaginable. But of course, for her, and for millions like her, and despite all the grim headlines and despite all the predictions of doom, life simply went on. Now, of course, in many ways, all this stuff, strikes and blackouts, Leo Sayer records, David Cassidy storybooks, all of this feels like ancient history. Even if this summer the trade unions kick up a huge fuss about their coalition's spending cuts, I think we can safely predict that we won't see anything like the three-day week or the winter of discontent that followed five years later. And indeed, 
There are plenty of other ways in which the early 1970s feel almost impossibly remote. For example, if you took a trip in your TARDIS back to Ted Heath's Britain, many of you would no doubt be horrified at the petty prejudices and inequalities that still govern the lives of most women. Until the end of 1971, for example, women were banned from going into wimpy bars, which was sort of the big fast food restaurant of the day. They were banned from going into them on their own after a certain hour at night on the grounds that the only women who would be out alone at that hour would obviously be prostitutes. Most women were still paid only two-thirds of what men got for doing the same job. Most married women were still housewives. Rapists were often given suspended sentences. They weren't sent to prison. In one case in 1975, a judge released one rapist on appeal because he said, quote, the victim was not without sexual experience. Gay rights was still an ambition rather than a reality. In opinion polls, half of the public thought that gay people should not be allowed to become teachers or doctors, and about four out of ten people in the early 70s thought that homosexuality should still be illegal, or even though it had already been decriminalised. Indeed, outright opposition to homosexuality remained a powerful element in British cultural life. When the novelist Angus Wilson came out in the mid-1970s, he was bombarded with hate mail. Why don't you take a long rope, find a tall tree and hang yourself by the neck until you're dead, you depraved faggot, spelt wrongly, read one letter. And this was not least because he was a key figure in the protests against British home stores in 1976, because BHS had forced a trainee manager to resign after he was shown kissing his boyfriend on an ITV documentary. Prosecutions of gay men for indecency actually went up rather than down in the 1970s, even though, of course, because it was no longer illegal, Uh, homosexuality convictions no longer had such a devastating impact on people's lives. And gay men still ran the risk of being attacked by so-called queer bashers, like the gang of teenagers who killed Michael de Grouchy, a solicitor's clerk on Wimbledon Common in 1970, or the building workers who killed Peter Bennion, a 32-year-old librarian in 1978. Indeed, even the most conservative among us I suspect would be shocked by the attitudes that many people who never thought of themselves as racist and indeed prided themselves on their tolerance showed towards their black and brown neighbours. This was a world in which 20 million people regularly tuned in to the black and white minstrel show, a world in which Enoch Powell was voted Britain's most admired man three years running. When the writer Jeremy Seabrook went to Blackburn to canvass local opinion on immigration, he found a torrent of praise for the controversial sage of Wolverhampton. He started too late with all this black business. He should have started sooner, said one elderly woman. He speaks the mind of all the white, well, three quarters of the white people in this country, said another. It's a pity old Enoch ain't in charge, mutters that quintessential 70s folk hero Alf Garnet in an episode of Till Death Us Do Part in January 1974. He'd sort them out. He'd put the coons down the pits, he would. Perhaps it was no wonder then that the pioneering black comedian Charlie Williams who was then easily the most famous black man in Britain, felt that he had to play the same game. He would tell audiences that he had been left in the oven too long. He was sweating so much, he would tell them that he was leaking chocolate. During the power cuts, he joked, I had no trouble at all. All I had to do was roll my eyes. And if people heckled him, he had what he thought was the perfect answer. If you don't shut up, he told them, I'll come and move next door to you. Now, of course, these weren't the only ways in which the Britain of Ted Heath, Tony Blackburn and Brian Clough would seem positively backward to a modern visitor. During the last election, there were pages of commentary 
about the similarities between the hung parliament of 2010, when the Liberals held the balance of power between the Conservatives and Labour, and finally jumped into bed with the Tories, and that of February 1974, when the same thing almost happened, but of course the talks broke down. Ted Heath had to move his piano out of number 10, and in came Howard Wilson at the head of a minority government. And yet, despite the superficial similarities, politically, the worlds of 1974 and 2010 are worlds apart. In the early 1970s, the coal industry, the railways, telecommunications, gas, electricity, even the buses were all publicly owned, nationalised industries. When Heath came into office in 1970, the travel agents Thomas Cook and Lund Polly were both state-owned. So too, bizarrely, were all the pubs in Carlisle. When the economy ran into trouble, Heath thought nothing of introducing legislation to control not just what you paid for your loaf of bread or your pint of bitter, but how much your employer could pay you every week, backed up by a massive apparatus of price commissions and pay boards that, to modern eyes, looks more like something from the, the other side of the Iron Curtain. And if the Tories, to modern eyes, in many ways seem surprisingly statist, then I wonder what many young voters today would make of Harold Wilson's Labour Party, which went to the country in February 1974, pledging to make businesses sign compulsory planning agreements with the government and also pledging to set up a national enterprise board which would take over firms so that the government could plan the national economy in the national interest. Tony Benn, who was then at the height of his fame, even had a plan for the National Enterprise Board to take over Britain's 25 top manufacturers so that he could liberate the British economy from the grip of multinational capitalism. As his colleague Dennis Healy sarcastically put it, yes, why don't we nationalise Marks and Spencers to make it just as good as the co-op? But for the time being, it was Ben who had the last laugh, for it was Labour that won that election. And they won in part because they appealed to people like Doug Peach. Now, Doug Peach was a shop steward in the black country engineering firm of Rubery Owen. And Rubery Owen supplied parts to the region, West Midlands car manufacturers, which then still existed. And in the mid-1970s, Rubery Owen was a byword for strikes and stoppages. Now, Doug Peach was the son and grandson of black country welders. He'd been invalided out of Dunkirk in 1940, and he'd worked as a welder himself, before becoming a shop steward, uh, for which he earned less than princely £4,000 a year. He lived in a two-bedroom terraced house in Blockswich, near the factory. His four sons all worked for Rubery Owen, and his wife Hilda ran a textile store in Winsfield Market. A man of traditional tastes, he spent his evenings feeding his chickens and inspecting his cucumbers. Later, he'd eat a cold tea in front of the television, and then he'd perhaps go to the working men's club for cribbage, dominoes, and a pint of mild. He was no firebrand. He was no extremist. When far-left militants tried to win over the workers, he recalled, I crushed the bastards. But Doug Peach believed that Britain was two nations, not one, and he was determined to fight to the last for the interests of the workers. This battle will continue when I'm finished, he insisted. There has got to be us and them. There has always got to be us and them. No doubt Doug would have agreed with the uh, sentiments of the Midlands MP who told the Times in 1976 that the Labour Party must, quote, always be a class party, for it is a class war we are fighting. Nowhere is this more clear than in the factories, where manual workers enter by one gate, eat in segregated canteens, and work longer hours in worse conditions than their betters. It was for them, this MP said, that he was fighting. Only if we win shall we have a civilised society. 
That MP's name was Robert Kilroy Silk, perhaps better known today for his appearance on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. And yet, as I was writing my book, it occurred to me that looking back from 2010 and concentrating on everything that seems ludicrous or outlandish or backward or outdated about the 1970s is entirely the wrong way to approach it. When Sam Tyler travels back to 1973 in Life on Mars, everything strikes him as painfully old-fashioned, as kind of brown and smoky and antediluvian and barbaric. But of course, nobody else thinks that way when he's there. And of course, what impressed people at the time was not how old and backward everything was, but how new. Not how old-fashioned Britain was, but how much it was changing. A time traveller from 2010 or 2011 at the wedding of Princess Anne might well be struck by how primitive everything seemed. But a time traveller from the last major royal occasion, the coronation in 1953, would be astonished at the sheer modernity of life in the early 1970s, the futuristic fashions, the general air of prosperity and comfort, the fact that so many people had cars of their own, the central heating, the indoor toilets, the gleaming new kitchens and bathrooms, the telephones, the fridges, the washing machines that ordinary families now took for granted. (coughs) If he wandered towards the West End, he would have surely rubbed his eyes in wonder at the high street fashion stores overflowing with new designs, at the bookshops groaning under their weight of stock, at the Italian pizzerias, the Indian curry houses, the Chinese takeaways. Indeed, if he'd opened a newspaper, he'd be taken aback by the complacent assumptions of abundance, the classified offers of second-hand cars and old appliances, the endless promises of high street sales, the features on gardening, motoring and DIY, the glossy adverts for cigars, liqueurs and foreign holidays. And the deeper point is that the people in the crowds that day were time travellers of a sort. Because, of course, many of them had come from the coronation in 1953. It had just taken them 20 years to get there. And if you reflect on how much life had changed for them and how much their country had changed during that journey, then I think you come to realise that the early 1970s were less the kind of last redoubt of backward Britain than a crucible in which a modern Britain was born. It was in 1973, after all, that Britain joined what is now the European Union, that what became the Green Party, first advertised for members. Martin Amis published his first book, even the BBC first broadcast, Last of the Summer Wine. It was in the early 1970s that hundreds of thousands of people started going on package holidays to Malta and Mallorca, that vegetarian restaurants and health food shops first became familiar sites on the British High Street, the campaign for real ale, began the fight back against cheap European lagers. The E.F. Shoemaker published the environmental manifesto Small is Beautiful. The Friends of the Earth began campaigning against pollution. It was in the early 1970s that pornography invaded the corner shop newsagent. Early 1970s, the page three became a fixture in the sun. In the early 1970s, too, that the Gay Liberation Front held its first demonstrations, that the first National Women's Conference heralded the rise in British feminism, and that Germaine Greer published The Female Eunuch. Women are tired of being patronised and condescended to. We are bored by being considered a curious and endangered species. And if our homes and families remain central to us and our concerns, they are no longer our horizon. Not Germaine Greer's words, Margaret Thatcher's. Indeed, even if you wish that women would get back to the kitchen, gays would get back in the closet and immigrants would go back where they came from, even if you 
want to drive a gas-guzzling 4x4, if you loathe the European Union, if you think that English football has gone downhill ever since they sacked Sir Alf Ramsey, you still live in a world the 70s made. You or your parents probably own a deep freezer, sales of which boomed 10 times between 1970 and 1978. You may even have visited a branch of Iceland founded in Shropshire in 1970, or been to one of the big out-of-town supermarkets that first appeared during the Heath years. You've almost certainly watched a colour television, and you've probably taken a few cheap flights abroad. You've certainly visited a shopping centre, like the pioneering Temple to Consumerism at Brent Cross, which opened in 1976. You've probably been to a sandwich bar, like the one in Fenchurch Street, which drew plenty of raised eyebrows when it opened three years later. I dare say some of you may have taken the pill, often hailed as a product of the 60s, but only available to unmarried women in the early 1970s. No doubt, sad to say, almost all of you have been to a branch of McDonald's, which first reared its ugly head in London in 1974. Perhaps tonight, tomorrow, one of you will eat a ready meal from Marks and Spencers, which first appeared at the end of the decade. I'd be surprised if this talk inspires any of you to dine tomorrow on prawn cocktail, steak and chips, and Black Forest Gatto, that quintessential 70s culinary lineup. But I guess there's a good chance that one or two of you might cook from a recipe book by a young woman who first appeared on television in September 1973. Maybe you might even treat yourself to her early recipe, Baked Fish Fingers, which recommends pouring tinned tomatoes, tinned mushrooms, and grated cheese over some fish fingers before proudly presenting it to the Joneses from next door. Somehow I rather doubt that Delia Smith still serves that one. The irony then is that if you really did wake up in 1973, you might recognise more than you think. The polyester clothes, the shaggy haircuts, the beige wallpaper, the terrible restaurants, they'd all take a bit of getting used to. But perhaps it would take little effort to accustom yourself to a world in which the economy was in free fall, the two main parties were competing to do deals with the Liberals, and England's footballers were a national laughing stock. And there'd be plenty of compensations. You could tune in every week to watch Colditz or Dad's Army. You could go to see David Bowie's retirement gig at the Hammersmith Odeon. You could roll back the years with Bagpuss, Findus Crispy Pancakes, and a few hours of the music of Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Every now and again, you might have to pinch yourself that you really were in a world where most people laughed at racist jokes, where you had to wait weeks for a telephone connection, and where the lights might go off at any moment. But you'd merely have to turn on the television and hear the words, nice to see you, to see you nice, and then you'd realise that some things never change. <laughs>